Hey y'all, you're listening to the Faith Church Sermon Podcast. We are so excited that you're connecting with us today. It is our desire for you to grow as a result of the resources we provide here. We pray that this blesses you today as you seek to know Him more. So in 2022, we're working our way through the whole Bible, started at the beginning, preaching through the whole Bible, encouraging you to read the whole Bible, and we're getting towards the end. It's November, and we're in the section of the Bible, which are the letters, or formerly known as the epistles, weird word, epistles, but they're just letters, right? And what's interesting about the Bible is there are 27 books in the New Testament. 21 of those are letters. Think of that for a moment. 21 letters. We don't really value letters in our culture. They don't seem like you might get a note here or there, but like a long letter with someone expressing what they think and feel towards you is not typical, but in the ancient world, this was the way of communicating. You could communicate through letters, and these letters are incredibly helpful to us. So imagine if you went into a library. You walked into a library, and you found the section that had historic letters, that letters were preserved in a library because they were so meaningful, historic, helpful to the people that read them that they were like, we gotta save these and put them in a library because they're setting a course for what's gone on, they're speaking about history, and they're impacting people. That's kind of what's happening in the Bible. There's these letters that were written by people to followers of Christ that were so important, so life-changing, so life-altering, that they were preserved by God in the Bible for us to learn, to listen, to grow, to hear something that's going to challenge us. And God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, worked through the authors and preserved these letters for us to learn and grow. So if you have your Bibles, we're in James chapter two. James chapter two, electronic copy, open that up, or paper copy. We use the New International Version around here if you're following along. And so we'd love for you to open, turn on, and follow with me, James, interesting guy, right? So James is the author of the letter that we're going to look at together, and he is the younger brother of Jesus. Just let that sit in for a moment. Jesus's younger brother, James, wrote a letter, and we, today in 2022, get to open it up and read it. That is fascinating. Imagine if Jesus is your older brother. Like, Let your imagination go for a minute. What is it like to have Jesus as your older brother? And what kinds of letters would you write if Jesus was your older brother? Imagine that. Imagine if the Virgin Mary is your mom. Right, like what is life like growing up with Jesus as your big brother? What's it like at school? What's it like at home? What's it like during chore times when someone's gotta go weed whack and someone's gotta cut the grass? Like, what's life like when Jesus is your big brother? And so Jesus is a normal guy, and throughout his life, he's just living with James, his younger brother, and they're doing life, and Jesus is a carpenter, and so through his teens and his early 20s, he's just a carpenter, and James is watching his older brother probably do things together. They probably argue a little bit. Jesus is always right, right? Like he never sins. That's, that's a problem. And imagine if you're writing a letter about it. Like, use your imagination. The scriptures invite us to use our imagination to think, And James is interesting because through the Gospels, you never really see James. Like, he's Jesus' 
old, younger brother, but you don't really know much about him. He's not an apostle. He's not a prominent leader. He's not a disciple. He's really absent from the gospel narratives. And yet when Jesus dies and rises again from the dead, now James all of a sudden is a prominent leader in the New Testament, and he's got stuff to write. So the death and the resurrection of Jesus changed James's life. He watched his brother. He saw his brother teach and preach. Doesn't really show that he believed anything until after the death and the resurrection of Christ. It alters James's life, and now he's a prominent leader in the church. And imagine, if Jesus is your older brother and you watched him die and rise again, you saw that firsthand, and you're watching people who are claiming to be followers of Christ live, think of the letter you would write. And so about 20 years after Jesus ascends back to God, James picks up a pen and writes a letter to the church of Jesus Christ, and it changed their lives and has the potential of changing our lives too. And so would you pray with me as we jump into James's letter? God, thank you for the opportunity to read letters preserved for us by the Holy Spirit from James's, James, the brother of Jesus. So would you use your scriptures, which are alive and active, to sync up with the hearts of your sons and daughters listening right now, that we might grow and be changed and have insight and be challenged by what we learn. Use these, this time and help us to let go of any preconceived notions, but be welcoming of your spirit to do things in us more than we could ask or imagine. I ask this in Christ's name, amen. We're about to read this letter from James, Jesus' younger brother. Two decades after Jesus died and rose again, he writes these words we're going to look at today. He starts out with a question, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? James, the brother of Jesus, says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Check out that question. Is that not relevant today? That is so relevant. Look at that. What good is it if someone says they're a follower of Jesus Christ, they have faith in Jesus Christ, but they have no deeds, no actions that represent that belief? What good is it to have faith in Christ with no lifestyle to match those words? What good is it if someone says they're a follower of Christ, but nothing in their deeds or actions align with that statement? He adds this important follow-up. He says, can such a faith save them? Can someone who says they have faith in Christ but has no deeds, no lifestyle, does that kind of faith save them? Is that the kind of faith that someone who says they're a Christ follower but they're Deeds don't match that. Is that salvific? Is that salvation? Is that person rescued? It's a great and relevant question for today. Are the people in this world, and the people in this room, and the people watching online who claim to be Christians, but they have no deeds, is, is that person saved? Remember James's writing to a group of people who are followers of Christ, so I don't think he's talking about salvation in this moment. He's not talking about being rescued from our sins. He's talking about something else. What is he talking about? About 10 years after James writes this letter, the Apostle Paul writes another letter to help us understand, I think, what he's talking about. We looked at this last week in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul writes, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, 
And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. Paul writes, it is by grace you're saved through faith, not from yourself, gift of God, not by works no one can boast. So you match up James chapter two and Ephesians chapter two, you, you learn something that we are not rescued by works. We're not rescued from our sins by the good deeds that we do. We're rescued from our sins, salvation, adopted into the family of God, reconciled by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, right? So Paul makes that super clear that Christ was the only person who lived a perfect life and died a death to absorb the wrath of God and grant us salvation. So when we put our faith and trust in God, he forgives our sins. He changes our life. He pays our debt. We're reconciled back to God, adopted into the family of God. And this is not by works. We couldn't earn this. Christ did it for us, and the work that he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection is applied to us by faith through the grace of God. Maybe, I don't know, maybe the reason Paul wrote Ephesians chapter two is in response to questions from James chapter two, because they're reading each other's letters, and like, okay, James says, faith without works is dead, and now Paul's like, let me clean this up, clarify a little bit for you in Ephesians chapter two so you understand this, but once we put our trust in the finished work of Christ, the Spirit of God lives inside us. And now as sons and daughters, we've got work to do. That's how we understand this. As sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, the Father, God the Father, we have work to do. What good is it if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? If we were to change this question into a statement, I think James is saying Christian words matter but Christian actions matter more. Check that, look at it. Christian words matter, truth matters, the Bible matters. These things matter, but our actions, our actions, our lifestyle matters more. The alignment of what we say and what we believe with our lifestyle is what matters most. And now James is going to give us some examples of this. He's gonna tell us first in verses 15 through 19, he's gonna show us what dead faith or fake faith, false faith looks like. And then verses 20 through 26, he's gonna show us what genuine living faith looks like. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Verse 15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, Keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs. What good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. You see the nature of this person's faith? You see, a dead faith uses all the right words, but it's not followed by action. Dead faith has the right spiritual truths, says the right things, but there's no action. I mean, I think a best example of this is like when your friend needs to move. Hey, can you help me move? I'll pray for you, right? Like, you need help moving your refrigerator. Someone needs help moving their refrigerator. Like, hey, can I help you? Can you help me move the refrigerator? Like, I'll pray for you. God Almighty, would you help my brother or sister move the refrigerator? Because, heck no, I'm going over to help. This is what James is saying. Like, he's saying that that's not, that's not faith. To have the right words, 
That's not genuine faith. The right truth, that's not genuine faith. He continues, but someone in verse 18 says, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Interesting. He says, you believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe. Check that. James says, demons believe in God, but dead faith acknowledges God but has no loyalty to God. Demons acknowledge. Lots of people say there is a God, one God. I believe in God. What separates living from dead is loyalty to that one God. How many people say they believe, but their lifestyle is so disconnected? Their actions acknowledge God, where their words acknowledge God, but they don't submit to God, that's dead. Now he's gonna give us two positive examples of genuine faith, starting in verse 20. He says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did? when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them in a different direction, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. He's using Abraham and Rahab, two stories from the Old Testament, to demonstrate a living faith, that their faith was so alive it resulted in action. It was out of the overflow of their faith in God that they acted and they did something a genuine faith moves beyond words to a costly loyalty. It's interesting that he uses Abraham and Rahab in this passage because there's something about their lives that their genuine faith cost them something. It cost them loyalty, obedience to God. But their loyalty and their obedience impacted many people. And perhaps this is what James means when he says in verse 15, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? Abraham and Rahab's faith was in God and God gave them the ability to take risks and do things for him and it was God who gave them the ability and by doing these things, they were able to advance the kingdom of God. They took the invisible God and made him visible by their actions. And because God became visible to the world, other people believed in God and their lives were changed. If we had genuine faith, it would move beyond our words to a cost, a loyalty, to an obedience that has the ability of sharing this kingdom, this good news, and helping other people move from death to life. So James is writing this letter, and he's teaching us this important point that faith without deeds is dead. And I, and I look at this statement, and, I, and it reminds me that, that words matter, 
My Christian words, my Christian truth, my Bible matters to me greatly, but how I live that out is what's alive. Faith without deeds is dead. Christian words are important, but Christian action is more important. And I look at this, and I, I want to apply this to my life. And I look at it, and I go, okay, I'm not fully sure. Okay, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And now, God, you have work for me to do. And without me living this lifestyle, it's, it's dead. What does it mean? Maybe this helps. This helps me to frame it for myself. Maybe it'll help you. Faith without deeds is dead. Maybe faith without fruit is dead. This helps me. This isn't about my salvation, my faith is in Christ, he rescues me, but he has put me on this planet to do something. And so when I look, come up to a tree or a tomato bush and it's intended to grow fruit and it has no fruit, what questions do I have to ask about that plant? Either the plant is dead or dying or it's dead to its purpose in producing fruit. Is it possible that God rescued you from the dominion of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of light and he has purpose for you to do in the kingdom and it results in fruit that's supposed to bear on you and change the world around you? But you and I and many people who take on the name Christian, we're like dead plants. It's just no purpose. There's no action. There's no lifestyle. There's no difference in me. It's just fire insurance that gets me out of hell and into heaven. And then while I walk on planet earth, I'm completely purposeless and dead. But what would it look like for you and me to say our faith is so alive that we bear fruit for the kingdom? And while we bear this fruit on the outside, it causes other people to be rescued Two, turn your Bibles backwards to Galatians chapter five. Galatians chapter five. I wanna look at this with you and maybe compare what God is doing through James in chapter two with Galatians chapter five. That every follower of Christ is intended by God to be transformed, where the old is gone and the new is come where we move beyond Christian words, Christian by name only, to a lifestyle that represents God in every way. Paul describes this transformation in verse 16. He says, so I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is it possible that there is a faith that's so alive, so genuine in you and me, that it says no to sin and puts that aside and bears fruit for the kingdom 
and rescues others, that as the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow, it starts to change our lifestyles and actions and what people see on the outside of us. And it demonstrates that I am alive. and God is alive in me. There are people who claim to be followers of Christ, but instead of being marked by the fruit of the Spirit, their lives are marked with sexual immorality. Our lives as followers of Christ, are they marked by sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, and orgies. New Testament would say, that's dead faith. That's not alive. That's not what you've been rescued for. Because genuine faith bears the fruit of the spirit of love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And when this fruit is evident in your life, it gives life to others. And I think James wants us to ask these hard questions as followers of Christ, is your faith dead or alive? Only you can answer that question. Is your faith dead or alive? Dead faith uses the right words, but their actions don't line up with their words. Is that you? Dead faith acknowledges that there is a God, but lives no loyalty to him. That's dead. Genuine faith moves beyond words to a costly lifestyle that honors God and bears fruit. When your family looks at you, when your workmates, classmates, when the people in the community look at you, what do they see? Dead faith or living faith? And I know many of us, we want to have a faith that's alive. We know that God has rescued us from darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light. We know what it feels to be forgiven and have our sins removed. We want to make a difference on this earth. How do we do it? Here's just a couple questions I think that are worth asking. Are you trying to earn God's approval or are you resting in the finished work of Christ? So many times, my sin, your sin, is like a little toddler that spills milk and tries to clean it up. You spill a gallon of milk as a toddler, and you try to clean it up so your parents can't figure it out, how's that going to go for you? But as people, how often is that what we're doing? We have sinned before a holy God. We have made an absolute wreck of our lives and the lives of people around us, and we're trying to clean up the mess without our Father knowing it? We're actually just going into more and more and more and more debt. We're making it worse and worse and worse and worse. Instead of realizing Jesus already cleaned it up, he paid the debt for you. And so when you run to him and say, I made this mess of my life, I keep going into greater debt trying to do good works to outweigh my bad works, which doesn't work. I need you, Jesus. And what happens when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, the work that he did on the cross, what he earned for me in salvation by his death and resurrection, he does a bank transfer. From my bankruptcy, he transfers his full life and work into my account so that when God the Father looks at me, he says, it's done. It's complete. It's full. I didn't earn it. Jesus did. And now I rest. 
I was bankrupt and made a mess of a gallon of milk. And now my father has paid it full and I am clean and I stand before him righteous and great by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and I rest. I rest in that. I don't have to fear. I don't have to try harder. I don't have to worry about what happens when I take my last breath. None of that. I put my trust in Christ, and he puts his spirit inside me, and now my life is to submit fully to him every day and every moment. It's not what I can earn. It's the result of what he's already transferred into my account, and now I am rich, and I can rest because the spirit of God is working in me. And if that's true of you today, like, if you're nervous about your salvation, if you're working harder, then, then you haven't found the rest of Christ yet. And I just want to introduce you to Jesus of Nazareth, who knows that you're bankrupt and you've spilled so many gallons of milk. Your life is an absolute train wreck. Can I introduce you to Jesus of Nazareth who loves you? And you can't work hard enough to get his approval. You just believe in him and he'll fill you with life everlasting and forgiveness. But if you've done that already, here's a question for you. Is your life marked by sin or the fruit of the Spirit? If you've put your trust in Christ, when people look at you, what do they see? When people look at me, what do they see? Do they see a life that's marked by sin, evil? Or do they see a life marked by the fruit of God being in me, of love and joy and peace and patience? With the Spirit's help, I can walk away from my sinful lifestyle and walk into a lifestyle that's loyal. I can't do that by myself, but his spirit lives in me. And so if you look at your life and you go, man, when people see me, they see a lot of other things, but they don't see the fruit of God's spirit alive in me. If that's you, it's okay. See that and confess it and say, God, I'm sorry. As your son and daughter, I've been living a dead faith. Forgive me. Would you help me? And turn, repent, run away from that. Confess to God and turn and say, God, would your Holy Spirit help me to say no to sin and bear the fruit of the Spirit? And over time, you watch what he does inside of you. He transforms you. You can't do it yourself, but he can do it as you ask him. He'll help you to live a lifestyle that pleases him. If your life is marked by sin, not the fruit of the Spirit, confess your sins to God, but the Bible teaches confess your sins to one another too. Because there's something about my brother or sister knowing what I'm struggling with that helps me to live a life that's pleasing to God. And so tell someone that you're struggling and that you're marked by sin instead of fruit of the Spirit. Tell them, someone you trust in your small group, go to Prayer Works. We have people ready for you right now online or at Prayer Works that want to hear, like, hey, I'm struggling with sin. I confess to God, would you help me? Would you pray for me? There's people that want to support you in this. God will help you as you repent and see the fact that your life is marked by sin and not fruit. And it's a long obedience in the same direction. It takes time. It's not going to be overnight. But as you daily say, I want to walk with you, God, help me, Spirit of the living God, to grow love in the, in the place of anger, <laughs> to grow forgiveness in me instead of bitterness I confess to you that I'm bitter against fill in the blank. Give me the spirit of forgiveness that I might be marked by the fruit of your son, Jesus. Is your life marked by sin or the fruit of the spirit? 
Let me make it super relevant to this week. Did you know there was an election on Tuesday? Did you, did you forget that already? I don't know. Maybe the ad stopped. So here we go. Here's an ad for you. Um, do you know that many people who call themselves Christians voted? Do you know that not everyone who called themselves Christians voted the same way? Do you know that there are people that are followers of Christ that are Democrat? There are people that are followers of Christ that are Republican? There are people that are followers of Christ that don't want to be a part of any of this, but they're citizens of this country. And maybe like you, like me, maybe you felt this. I, I went into the election really hopeful. How did you come out of the election? Did you, did you put all your hope in an election to solve our world's problems? Whether you like the outcome of the election or you don't like the outcome of the election, does the election solve all the world's problems? Has it fixed all your problems and made everything good between you and your friends and neighbors and coworkers and everything's great in our country now? Is that, is that what your experience? How long is it gonna take, Faith Church, for us to realize that elections aren't gonna solve our problems? The politics are not going to fix what's going on inside my heart and inside my home and inside of our schools. But maybe, just maybe, James's important question could help. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Does James' question from 2,000 years ago apply to the politics of today? I would tell you yes and amen. This verse is explicit to what's going on in our country today. What is going to save me and you and everyone else from the sin and bankruptcy of spilling milk over and over and over again? The next politician? Heck no, Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can fix my problem. He's the only one who can fix your problem. And when Jesus fixes my problem, he changes me. So I... If you didn't know this, I care about politics. I hope you all voted. I hope you get involved in politics and school boards. I hope we show up in all kinds of ways. But at the end of the day, my greatest desire as a follower of Christ is to bear the fruit of the Spirit. That love and joy and peace and patience and forbearance and kindness and gentleness, self-control would be what marks me. And as that marks me, it changes my family. And as my family is changed, it changes my school and my community and my workplace and my state and my country. But if we are all so Christian that we don't look like Jesus, we got a real problem. Because faith without deeds is dead. Faith without a lifestyle that looks like Jesus is dead, and frankly, it causes death in others. Because when I don't bear the fruits of the Holy Spirit, instead I bear dead fruit, it poisons people and a culture. But when the sons and daughters of Almighty God say faith is aligned with my actions and my beliefs, and I become someone who says no to sin and no to evil, Yes to God, and I invite his Holy Spirit into my life, and he begins to change me from the inside out because he paid my debt, he cleaned up my mess, and he gave me his spirit to live inside me. That's the greatest difference I can make in whatever sphere I find myself, and that's what can change a world and save a world. And so just reframing it and going, Joe, I need to go into the elections this week going, can faith without 
deeds be a living faith? It's like, no, I, I want to be someone who walks by faith, which includes voting and includes trusting an almighty God and bearing the fruit of the Spirit with whatever comes, because that is what will change our world, one person at a time. I, I want to close by reading the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 7 which has everything to do with what I'm talking about today and everything to do with what our nation is experiencing as a whole. So I'm gonna ask you, if you would, would you stand with me? Would you stand on, online, at home, wherever you're watching, will you stand? And I wanna read the words of King Jesus to us as a family. And I want you to hear these words because they come from a guy who's going to be crucified but he's speaking about what is most important, that King Jesus, who died and rose again and who will return one day to judge and rescue the world, wrote these words, spoke these words that might help you and me as we think about our faith and our lifestyle and bearing fruit. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. These are the words of the Almighty, Alpha and Omega, who's coming to judge the quick and the dead. May we be people that bear fruit.